We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Total Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome to the program. And, you know, Steve March Torme. And we're going to talk about, it's very interesting, the background. You have the March and you have Torme. And you have also the story about your successful singing career and being involved in sports and being a presenter. So you have a really interesting background, Steve. Thanks for stopping by. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Yeah, it, it, not a lot of dull moments so far. So that's good. That's lot, lots of stuff going on. Exactly. So let's talk about it. Growing up when, when you were a child, did you want to be a, a singer? Was that the first thing? Uh, the first thing was I wanted to be a major league baseball player, like a lot of kids. And I was, I was playing baseball and playing little league and pony league. And I, I wanted to be a, a shortstop for the Yankees, you know, growing up in New York uh, uh, at that time. And it was after listening to Yankee games on AM radio in the morning uh, in our basement, because as I remembered, you know, the East coast actually has basements. I found out the people in California don't have basements. Uh, I would listen to AM radio. And that's when I really got more interested in, in music and singing along to the radio and realizing, Oh, well, I don't know if you're good at this yet or not, but it, it seems that you've got a pretty good ear for it. I do have the, I have it in my genes. Um, and that's when it kind of switched. That, that's when I realized from about the age of, I don't know, 16 or 17 on, I realized, all right, you're a pretty good ball player, but you're not good enough to be in the major leagues. So let's, let's lose that idea completely. And you really do like singing. And again, like a billion other people, when the Beatles came on television, the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, well, this looks like fun. These guys, this is not, you know, this is not Jerry Lee Lewis and, and Elvis. This is a whole different thing. And that was that for me was really the spark of it for, for a lot of musicians. I've, I, I know so many musicians who said the same thing. The Beatles really influenced them as making a, a career choice. And that's surprising for your late father, as famous as he was, that you weren't first into singing. Well, you know, my mom and dad got divorced when I was about two years old. So I didn't grow up in the household with Mel Torme. Uh, I grew up with Hal March and for your uh, listeners and people that follow your show uh, the, who don't know, he was the host of the $64,000 question show, which was a huge game show at the time. He was also a Broadway actor. He was uh, on Broadway and Neil Simon's Come Blow Your Horn, kind of a jack of all trades uh, entertainer. So I didn't grow up around jazz music necessarily. It, it kind of became inherited. And instead of growing up around all those musicians that people think, oh, what was it like? You must know Buddy Rich and, you know, and all these people that your dad worked with. I knew my stepdad's friends and my, and my mom's friends because our dinner parties were all the Borscht Belt comedians. Almost every weekend in our house for dinner, it was Lucy and Milton Berle and Phil Silvers and Jack Carter and Shecky Green and Red Buttons. These, these were their friends. So I was around all these funny people that Buddy Hackett, and this, this was our, our living room. So I consider myself really lucky. I, I had a terrific childhood and a, a lot of laughs in our home. So did you go back to your father's music later on in your life to kind of really study and understand it, especially as a musician and how I, I, amazing of a singer he was? I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I knew how, who he was obviously and, and how important he was in popular and or jazz music, but it wasn't until I got to be a little bit older and started doing uh, albums that were more big band jazz oriented that I really started listening more to his stuff. And you said it perfectly. I, I really started to appreciate just how good a musician he was because there are a lot of people that can sing. 
lots of people can sing, um, but to also be able to arrange and play piano and play the drums and play them well uh, and, and be able to put medleys together. And I realize the more I've done this, the more I've kind of shadowed some of the stuff he did. He did and I didn't do it on purpose. I mean, there are songs in, in this current run of concerts that we're doing right now called For Kids from 1 to 92, which is a, a holiday concert. There's a medley in there that I put together. It's just probably the same way he would have. I took three songs and, and switched them up and went back and forth and modulated keys and, and switched uh, time signatures. I know he would have done the same kind of thing. And I didn't do it to emulate him. It's just there in the genes. So long answer to a very short question. Yes, I really did start to appreciate a lot more how musical he was. And did you go back and so you were just not just listening to music, you were listening to different things. Were you talking to people that grew up with your father as well? Because of the connects you have in comedy, you can connect that to entertainment. And a lot of comedians open for musicians, as we all know, like uh, uh, different people that open up for Sinatra, different ways. So you had the ability to go and reach out to a lot of them that maybe worked with your father to kind of learn too, right? Yes. And even better than that, a number of people that worked with my dad, I ended up working with. And that was the most gratifying, you know, to, to um, let's see, Kim, uh, what's his last, Kim Shepard, he's, he's a, a saxophone player. There's a, a number of musicians, uh, Donnie Osborne, who was dad's drummer for a long time. I've worked with them. And the most gratifying thing to hear is, you know what, your, your dad would be really proud of you. You know, you're not writing coattails. You are a musician in your own right. And he would really appreciate that. And it's pretty cool to meet Kim Richmond, that's his name, and to meet people that say, yeah, I did a gig with your dad back in, you know, 1985 out in Pasadena, and it's really cool to be playing with you now. I, I can't get a nicer compliment. I mean, I'm very flattered that people would think that I'm, at least I can be talked of somewhat in the same category, at least of being a professional, that's all. So and I'm going to go cool. back to this because, again, you're, you're talking about one of the professional baseball player. It's just interesting to bring up your father in that way because now you're influenced in a different way even before music. So was presenting and especially with your stepdad being, you know, hosting a, a show and he's a comedian. Did you have any of those aspects as well? Because, again, you did, do, you did end up becoming a host of things. So you wore both hats. Was it more important love of music? or what your stepdad was doing was more of a love of yours after baseball, after the uh, baseball. No music for sure. Music. I've only become a presenter for things because people have asked me to, and I'm comfortable in front of an audience, but I, I have no, I, I never had an aspiration of, you know, I want to, I want to host a game show one day, or I want to be a presenter. I've, I love singing. And um, I ho hopefully you've heard the song. I remember Christmas time. Yes. That John sent. Um, that's my strength, being on a stage and singing and entertaining people. But I'm flattered that I've been asked to, you know, will you come host this event? We have a, <clears throat> we have a fundraiser. Would you host it? I'm flattered that they are comfortable enough to ask me and know that I'm not going to screw it up for them. So that's probably how I got, that's how I got my radio gig. I've been doing radio in, in Wisconsin and, you know, we we're streamed all over the world. I've been doing this for 10 years. I had no aspirations to be a radio host, none. And it happened by accident. And now I have the most listened to show in this area for this. I, again, you know, I'm not telling you, you don't know. Show business is serendipitous. It, you know, stuff happens that you don't plan. And all of a sudden you look back and go, gosh, I've been doing this a couple of years now. So, yeah, after baseball, it was it was music. And then to end up playing on on two national teams 
and winning gold medals over in another country to me was like, you got to be kidding me that this happened. So I, I just got very, very lucky. And I, I thank my stepdad for teaching me how to play ball. Otherwise, I, that never would have happened. And I thank my real dad. This is why I use these two last names, kind of an homage to both of them. Right. Um, I thank my real dad, both of them, for being supportive of what I do. And, not, you know, they both gave me a great sense of self-esteem, which I, I try to give to my kids. Same thing. That's great. So tell me about the radio show for a second. I want to just jump into more about some of the experiences because of who you met that has has influenced you in a lot of ways as entertainers. I'd like to hear some of these stories of people that we all know of. And that's why I think you have a great book, because just think about who has been in, you've, you've been in a comfy myth or been working with in your whole career. Well, <laughs> well, we're not on FM or AM radio now, so I actually can tell a story that normally I wouldn't be able to. Yes. Uh, no swearing because we are on AM. No, 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 I won't. Okay, um, I'm not, we are on AMFMF radio. So, okay, yeah. Uh, all right, well, I tell you what, I'll give you a quick story and, and not use the word that was used by the person, but you'll get the idea. Um, so, Lucy used to show movies at the house. They lived a block away from us in Beverly Hills when we moved out from Westchester County to LA because Hal wanted to be more connected with the business than being in New York. And if you want to do that, you want to be in television, Los Angeles is the place to be. So we, we moved out there. And the first person I met, the first person my age was Desi Arnaz Jr. And at the time, he was in a, 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 a bubblegum band called Dino, Desi and Billy. And they had a little bit of success. They had a, they had a couple of, of records that did pretty well. And they're pretty well known on the radio. But point being, we were friends with their family. So Lucy would show movies. And I go up the block and Desi and I would get invited. And we could sit there and watch movies. So one day, <laughs> one day they were showing a movie called Where Eagles Dare. I don't know if you know about the movie. It was a, it was a movie starring Clint Eastwood and Telly Savalas and a bunch of World War II soldiers that were going to storm what was called the Eagle's Lair. It was in, in oh, I guess it was in the, in, in the Alps. It was the Nazis had this uh, fortress up in the mountains. And that was the whole story was... The, these these GIs from World War II were going to storm this castle and take out all these Nazi soldiers. Anyway, Milton Berle sitting behind me, and he knew that he could get me. He knew he could get me in trouble because it just made him laugh. So we're watching the movie, and it's a real tense scene, and, and Clint Eastwood's with his machine gun going up these stairs, and they can hear these Nazi soldiers. And, and Milton leans forward, and he goes, Stevie, Stevie. And Lucy hears, she goes, Milton, quiet, we're watching the movie. And he said, okay, okay. Two seconds later, he goes, Stevie. I go, what? He says, you know about Clint, don't you? I said, what? He, he kind of gave like, you know, different persuasion. That's not the word he used. And I laughed out loud. And Desi and, and Milton and I all got thrown out. Lucy said, that's it. You're out of here. And Milton thought it was funny because he got me to laugh at a, a, a homophobic slur that he threw at, at Clint Eastwood. And he, obviously he was kidding, but yeah. he knew it would make me laugh. So that's the kind of stuff we would go through. And, you know, at our, our dinner parties, I was a little boy. I had to be in bed by nine o'clock and go to school the next day. But I was I'd be listening at the door to hear the jokes that were being told in our living room. And the longer the evening went on and the more the Chevis was being poured, the filthier the jokes got. And the person who would laugh the loudest is my mom. And my mom was very elegant, really pretty lady. And, you know, elegance, the best word I can think of, very classy. And, you know, I could hear Buddy Hackett you know, in the living room going, so anyway, this donkey is in there and he's humping a rabbi and my mom's screaming. She was the funniest thing she's ever heard. So that was the kind of stuff that I grew up with. And again, I'm thankful that I did. Um, 
who knows what would have happened if I'd grown up with, with my dad, Mel. I think, I think it would have not been good for me because I think I would have emulated his voice too much. You know, being around him all the time right. and hearing his music all the time, just by nature. You know, if, if you live in California, you move to Alabama, after about six years, you'll probably pick up a little bit of a Southern accent because you're around it. So I was probably, it probably worked out best that I connected with my dad later in life. So you did connect with your dad later in life. I didn't know that. So, so, so tell me that story. Well, um, there's a specific reason. You know, we were geographically separated, which is not, not his fault. And when I was in New York, he lived in California. So the first, you know, like 12 years of my life, we'd talk on the phone once in a while, or he'd come into New York to do a show and I'd see him for a day. But when we moved out to LA, he was doing what I try to do as much as possible, which is be working, being on the road and working. Well, he called me up one day. I, no, that's not true. I called him up and I said, look, I have a problem here. And I don't know if you can help me or not, but my car blew up. The engine on this thing seized and I've, I'm in a pickle and I'm not calling you to ask you to get me a car. I'm, I'm, I'm calling to say, I don't have the money for a down payment. Uh, if you will loan me the money for a down payment, at least I can get started and I'll make the payments, but I'm, I'm stuck. I mean, we're in Los Angeles. Gotta have, have to have a car. So he says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you the money for the down payment. You don't have to pay me back, but in return, you have to help me with your grandfather. And I said, well, well, what is it? He says, he's driving me nuts. And he adored his father, but apparently Mel would be going on stage to a concert like in Cincinnati and he'd get a, a phone call backstage two minutes before he's supposed to walk out in front of the audience. Go, Mr. Torme, it's your father. But what? He goes, it, it's apparently important. It's an emergency. So Mel would have to go backstage, pick up the phone, go, dad, what is it? And my grandfather would say, I can't find my belt. <laughs> so it was just, he was 90 plus years old and living anyway, I, I get it. But he figured he called dad and said, do you know where my belt is? So my dad said, look, do me a favor. If you will take your grandfather out once a week, you pick the day, but go by his, his apartment and take, you know, and at this point um, my grandmother passed away. So my grandfather was by himself and he said, take him out uh, to lunch. We have an account in Beverly Hills at Nate Now's. Take him to lunch there. Take him on his grocery run. If he needs to go to the doctor, take him to the doctor. If you do that, uh, I'll give you the down payment for the car. I said, you got a deal. So for five years, every single Monday, I went to my grandfather's and took him out. I ended up carrying him into the doctor's office literally a couple of times in my arms because he was in distress. Um, so at the end of that period, while my grandfather was still alive, I get a phone call from my dad on a Saturday morning at seven o'clock in the morning. He lived in Beverly Hills. I lived in Santa Monica. So it's about, I don't know, 15, 20 minute drive, Right. seven o'clock. And he goes, <laughs> I answer the phone. He goes, Stephen. I said, hello. He goes, it's your father. I said, yes, I recognize the voice. Yes. What's up, dad? I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay, well, it must be pretty important. It's seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. What is it? Just come up to the house. I said, now? He goes, yeah, now. I'm like, oh, Jesus. All right, uh, I'll be there in 20 minutes. I hang up the phone and my heart's beating like I'm a kid in trouble at school. Like, what could I have possibly done that he's upset with me? You know, maybe somebody saw me out in public with my grandfather and I was being silly. I have no idea. So I, I drive up to the house. The housekeeper meets me at the door and she gives me a look like, oh boy, I'm glad I'm not you. you know, oh, what can this possibly be? So I go in the kitchen, he's in his bathrobe in the kitchen, glasses on his head, a glass of orange juice. I said, so dad, what's this? He goes, 
just let me finish my orange juice. I'll tell you in a second. I, said, oh. and I literally feel like I'm at the principal's office. And I didn't get in trouble when I was a kid. Right. I was terrified of my, my stepfather. I didn't do that. So let's go, let's go in the living room. I said, okay. So we go in the living room. Sit down, Stephen. I sit down. He sits down across from me. He reaches behind his back and he pulls out a brand new, had to be a $350 HO locomotive because he knew I liked trains. And he hands it to me and a big smile on his face. He goes, I just wanted to thank you for taking care of grandpa and being so responsible. And he starts laughing. And I looked at him, I said, you know, I will get you for this at some point. At some point, what you did here to put me through that and, and scare me, and he's cackling like it's the funniest thing he's ever heard. I said, it's okay, it'll happen. I'll get you back, you won't know when it happens. But we had finally formed a nice bond. It was his way right. of saying, thank you for being responsible and actually showing up every Monday and I want to get you something for it. So uh, I tell that story when I do a, a different show of mine called Torme Sings Torme. And I kind of, embellish the story and, and say that I went back to his house and, and removed a bunch of clothes, whatever. It's just, I, it needed a punchline, but that is kind of emblematic of how we became closer afterwards. And <clears throat> when I did my first kind of big band jazz album, I asked him to sing a duet. Uh, and it's kind of hard to find songs for two men to sing as a duet. It's usually yeah. a woman. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll sing with you. What are, you, what are you thinking of doing? I said, well, I've been kind of thinking of songs and you know what? Straighten up and fly right would work. That would work. Cause it, you know, there's a lyric, cool down pop, but don't you blow your top. We can harmonize. So he came into the studio with me. We did two takes live on one microphone, just like, you know, like George and Paul back in the day. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, that's it. I'm hungry. We're going to lunch. Sounds good to me. I said, great. And unfortunately for him and fortuitously for me, he had his stroke not long after that session and he never sang again. And I have this recording with him. So again, lucky, just lucky. Um, but that kind of shows you, we did get together afterwards and he, he started telling me, now you're starting to get it. You know, now you're starting to sing good music. And I said, well, I appreciate that. So guess how I heard of Mel Torme. And I wonder if anybody. I, I already know it, it's, it's going to be either night court or Seinfeld. No, it's neither. no. It's Alice. Oh my how, God. How? Yes. <laughs> so it was an episode of Alice? Yeah, where he always oh, talked about it. Mel always so talked about his biggest fan was Mel Torme, uh, singer was Mel Torme. And Mel came to the, to, um, Mel came to Mel's diner one time. It's oh, that's an episode. so funny. That's, that's so funny. how I know of him. No, I did. I probably others, but. I was exposed to Alice growing up watching this show and that, and, and I love Mel. I mean, both the, you know, the, Mel, from Mel's diner. And right, then right. he always talked about Mel Torme and then Mel Torme one time showed up. Oh, it's not going to be Mel Torme. It's not going to be Mel Torme. I right. have to look at it on Wikipedia, but I didn't know. I forgot about night court and the other, but that's how I remember. Well, and you, of the age that you are and people that, especially even younger people today, most of them don't know who he is or, yeah, the guy from Night Court, right? The guy from Night Court. I go, boy. I remember know. that Night Court episode now, but I did not know that was Mel Torme. See, isn't that funny? So I'm talking, it was, he was playing himself. Was he playing himself in Night Court too? Oh, absolutely. The, the, it was a running gag. I mean, he was on a number of episodes. The whole thing was Harry Anderson had a picture of Mel Torme on his desk. Oh, and he, yeah. he played the judge. Yeah. And 
people were constantly, well, what's the deal? I don't get it. What's the connection? What is that? And all it was, was Harry Anderson was a fan of Mel Torme. So he would keep this picture on his desk. Well, they eventually had Mel on the show a number of times. As a matter of fact, Harry Anderson was one of the pallbearers at dad's funeral. Really? Oh, so they wow. really were, they really were buddies. Um, and of course the Seinfeld episode, which I've seen now and everyone has seen is the one where Kramer goes to the dentist and his mouth is all numbed up and dad got asked to, to uh, it's at a fundraiser of some sort, I think for autistic, I'm, I'm trying, oh, trying yeah, to get it right. That right. was and, him. Oh my gosh. Why right. did I remember only through Alice? Why do I remember him only through Alice and not Night Court, which I know, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Night Court and Seinfeld. Now you remind me about those episodes. Yeah. And the Seinfeld episode, which I'm probably not telling it exactly correctly, but dad apparently was there to sing or to host something. And, and he's talking to Kramer. And Kramer can only answer like, because his mouth is all numbed up. And Mel thinks he's autistic. It was very, very funny. And Mel's going, it's okay. So you don't have to try and go. Anyway, they got away with it. And it was very funny. A lot of people have seen that episode. I think Alice is before those two. Probably. Yeah, it has to be. Because Alice, because Seinfeld's was later. And then also Night Court came out later it was again that's amazing that those are the reasons people remember at certain ages right and yeah. again you so your father definitely was an entertainer as well so that's something where i guess your skill set even though you were a singer you figured out ways of doing some other entertainment so tell yeah. us things yeah. that you you did that were not singing well i so, yeah. i did i was uh i got a call from a guy who was managing me at the time and said i've got an audition for you I said, okay. And I'm trying to get club dates and theaters and whatnot, trying to get another record deal. I said, what's the audition? He goes, well, it's for a game show. I said, why would I want to be on a game show? And he said, well, maybe if you shut up for a second and listen, I can explain to you. It's a national syndicated game show. A lot more people would see you on it than are going to see you in a club. I said, well, what is it? It's the hundred thousand dollar name that tune. I said, okay. He says, anyway, you've got an audition in two days. I went, all right. So I show up to this audition and there's no accompaniment. There's no piano player. There's no nothing. I go into a little office. There's the executive producer and maybe the director. And you just have to stand there and sing. That's one of the hardest things to do in the world. I mean, a person three feet from you, you're in an eight by 10 office. All right, Steve March. And my name was Steve March at the time and not yet Steve March Torme because I hadn't made it legal. Uh, this is Steve March. Hey, nice to meet you, Steve. What are you going to sing for us? And I sang uh, Daniel by Elton John uh, because they'd give me some background on the kind of music they were going to be doing. And I sang Blue Suede Shoes by Elvis or actually Pat Boone, too. And I got the gig and I became the singer on Name That Tune. I replaced Kathy Lee Gifford. Oh, really? And I did the show for three years and I ended up making friends with some people that have become lifelong friends. Uh, one of the guys that was on that, we were kind of like the toy rock band. There were two bands. We had the rock band that did all the, you know, all the pop stuff, Eagles and Doobie Brothers and pop music. And then there was a swing big band that did the older material. And uh, one of the guys who played with us, the, the bass player in our, our little rock band, came into um, rehearsal one day and he had a cassette tape. He said, I'm, I'm auditioning for this band. I want you guys to hear this. And it was uh, it was a version of California Girls by the Beach Boys in seven, eight time which you don't do. So it was going, I wish we all could be California, wish we all could be California, wish we all could be California girls. This real frantic. Well, he ended up being the bass player in Oingo Boingo. 
they, they took him. So that's where that came from. Uh, so th- I have so many stories where I can't even start to tell you. Um, you know, I told you I, I played in these two, uh, these two Maccabea games. For those who do or don't know what the Maccabea games are, also referred to as Maccabia, they are the Olympic games for Jewish athletes all over the world. And they're held every four years like the Olympics, but staggered two years away from the Olympics. So like the Olympics are 1980 and 84, the Maccabee games are 82 and 86. So it doesn't coincide. And even though that sounds like a punchline, you know, Olympic, you know, Olympic games for Jewish athletes, there were some very good athletes that won gold medals in this Mark Spitz flag bearer, gold medal winner, um, uh, Brad Gilbert, the tennis commentator who was a top 10 player, uh, uh, Dolphin and Danny Shays of the NBA. So there have been some really legitimate, great athletes. I got fortunate enough to make these two teams and win gold medals in both. And my point of this story is not that. It's that one of the people that helped me get there, because every time I called him and said, look, I, I want to go out and work out for an hour and a half. I want you to hit me uh, you know, another 200 ground balls, another 200 fly balls, is a guy that we lost recently who became my friend, uh, the comedian actor Fred Willard. Oh, so wow. it's like, where did that come from? Well, we were neighbors and he loved baseball and he would come out and do that with me. And he would never complain and say, God, I'm tired. I go, nope, I got another hundred ground balls and he would do it. And we became friends. So I've got a really interesting life and characters yeah, that have come into my life. Absolutely. You have. And I wanted to talk about sports in the way that you were involved with sports involving that's in your Wikipedia and that involved the Yankees and different types of things. So not just baseball, you did kind of live out your dreams in a way, right? Yeah, I did. And again, that the story with the Yankees is a great story because it came out of nowhere. Um, I got a call from a friend of mine uh, in the middle of the day. He said, hey, guess where I am? I said, I don't really want to guess. Why don't you tell me where you are? He says, uh, I'm down in Florida. I said, OK, you know what I'm doing? No, tell me what you're doing. Well, I'm at the Yankee fantasy camp. I said, OK. He said, well, have you ever had a desire to do a fantasy camp? I said, no. He says, why not? I said, because to be honest with you, I can still play. I can still play baseball. And I know what the fantasy camps are. It's, you know, guys that haven't played ball in a few years can afford a couple of dollars and go meet their heroes, which is all fine and well and get autographs and hobnob with the guys they watched when they were kids. But most of them are way past the age of playing. I know guys aren't playing in a lot of baseball leagues when you get into your 40s and 50s, maybe softball, but this is baseball. They're they're 90 foot bases and it's baseball. He said, well, there's somebody here who wants to talk to you. I said, okay. Put him on the phone. So this guy gets on the phone. He says, hey, is this uh, Steve Torme? I said, well, it's Steve March Torme, but you got the right person. Yeah. Who, who's this? He says, this is Tony Kubek. I'm like, and, and I had a Ralph Cramden moment. It was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm He was one of my heroes growing up. He was the shortstop for the Yankees for 10 years, multiple World Series winner. And then when he retired, he and Kurt Gowdy did the game of the week. Yeah. So lots of people knew who Tony Kubek was. And I... I said, well, hi, nice to meet you. He goes, hey, uh, so uh, your, your friend here tells me you're a good ball player. I said, well, I'm okay. I, I, can, I can play. Uh, he, I said, is my friend being a pain in the butt? He goes, yeah. I said, that, yeah, that's the right guy. He said, well, have you ever thought about doing Yankee camp? I said, Tony, not really. I, I, you know, I'm sure it's a lot of fun for guys, but I know it's kind of expensive, and I don't, I don't know if I really want to come down and just get autographs and kind of play with guys that can't really play anymore. Um, so he said, well, you ought to come down, and I think you'd have a great time. Uh, anyway, nice meeting you, by the way, a big fan of your father's and your friend Patrick tells me you're, you're, you're quite a jazz singer. I said, well, that's very nice of him and, and nice to meet you. So he gets off the phone and my friend gets back on and he says, take a guess where Tony lives. I said, I don't want to guess. Where does Tony live? He says he lives in Appleton. He lives where you live. 
I said, you got to be kidding me. He lives in Appleton, Wisconsin. What? He goes, yeah, he lives there. He lives near Lawrence University in a condo. I said, wow. I said, he said, you should look him up, you know, when, when we finish camp. So about a month later, and, and again, I've been so fortunate to be around people in the business and celebrities. I don't really get phased by meeting people. Right. Tony, I'm, I can hear my, I'm nervous on the phone saying, hi, it's Steve Marsh Torme. And oh, hey, Steve, how you doing? I said, great, great. I said, look, any chance we could meet up and have lunch or something? He goes, yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. He said, yeah, you know where Oshkosh is? I said, yeah, that's, that's about, I don't know, 25 minutes from where I live. He goes, yeah, there's a pizza place. I know the owner. Come on out. I said, great. I said, I have to ask because I'll kick myself by down. Any chance we can play catch? We throw the ball. He goes, oh, no, no, no. The shoulder's long gone. That ain't going to happen. I said, okay. So anyway, we meet up for lunch and he's got his son with him and a few other people. And to make a long story short, I threw out some names that most people wouldn't know because I wanted, I wanted to ingratiate myself to him without being annoying. I didn't want to say the obvious stuff. And I, I came in. The first thing I said was, hey, nice to meet you. And thank for doing this. Oh, by the way, Mel Coates said to say hi. He goes, Mel Coates, you know Mel, Mel Coates, meanest, dirtiest guy I ever played with. He was, he was a mountain man. He was a racist. I said, well, he said to say hello. And of course, I'm making this up because I don't know Mel Coates, but I know who he is. And I said, oh, and by the way, Marshall Bridges. He goes, Marshall Bridges. Did I ever tell you about Marshall Bridges? I said, no, I met you a minute and a half ago. So what about Marshall Bridges? He goes, he would come into the, he would come into the locker room with a, a Wall Street Journal under his arm. You know why? I said, no, why? Just because he couldn't read and he didn't want the guys to know he was embarrassed by it. So I had brought up two kind of obscure relief pitchers for the Yankees, who I know he played with, because I didn't want to meet him and say, hey, does Yogi really say those wacky things, Tony? And did Mickey really drink that much? Because every fan's going to ask him that. Yeah. So I knew I had him hooked. He's got somebody who he knows really follows the game and followed those Yankees. Bottom line is my mom, uh, we had convinced my mom, look, there's a thing that happens later on with inheritances that you can gift your children a certain amount of money. I think it's like $5,000. And if you don't, the government takes it. It's as simple as that. There, it's a gifting thing that you can do. And if you, I said, mom, if you don't, I'm not asking you for money. I'm just letting you know, though, the government will take that in taxes. You can give it to us. I've got something I'd like to spend it on. I want to go do this Yankee camp because Tony, when I met Tony and he said, so you think of doing the camp? I go, I don't know. I said, I'll tell you what, Tony, if you'll come to the batting cage with me, because I played a lot of fast pitch softball, but I haven't played baseball since right. Pony League. I haven't been on a baseball field. It's a long throw and I can do it, but I haven't played. Will you come to the batting cage with me? He said, yeah, but I got to tell you now, I can't help you. And I said, well, why not? He said, because if you can hit, I can't help you. And if you can't hit by now, I can't help you. I said, good point. Good point. So we go to the batting cage. He said, oh, you can. I said, yeah, I can't do too many things. I can play baseball. I can sing, play some tennis. That's about it. I can play piano and guitar, but that ain't going to work at Yankee camp. So I talked myself into doing this. I said, look, if I'm ever going to do it, what am I going to wait till I'm 85? I mean, right. I, I might as well do it now while I can still play. So I went to camp and there's a great story that goes with it. I will not tell here because we can't. Uh, but it was a great time. And, uh, and yeah, uh, when I meet you, when I meet you, I'll give you that story. When oh, we, we definitely, definitely ought to meet some. Um, okay. So, but it was, it was a lot of, awesome. oh yeah. So All it right. was just, it was a lot of fun. And one of the people I met who didn't really want to meet people was Yogi Berra. Cause Yogi was like 118 already that was like, Ugh. and Tony introduced me to him and he didn't want to know, he didn't want to be bothered. 
he was there at camp. They kind of take him around in a golf cart, but he doesn't want campers bothering him. So Tony gave him the, oh, Yogi, I want you to meet some. This is Mel Torme's son, Steve March Torme. And you know, Yogi kind of gave me a, uh. I went, oh, well, nice to meet you, Mr. Barry. And I did the same thing with him. I said, oh, by the way, you know, I'm pretty good friends with Sherm Lawler. He goes, Sherm Lawler. I haven't heard that name in years. So I did the same thing and he signed a bat for me. I mean, I know how to work it. So anyway, that's the yeah, story. You're in the showbiz industry and especially comedians, they know how to work it. So let's kind of go into specifically your radio, your latest projects. You have a radio show and then you're touring. So tell us about both of those things. Yeah. Okay. The latest things I'm doing, we, we are in the middle of this tour and the show is called for kids from one to 92 lifting a song, a line from my dad's song. And there are three headliners, myself, uh, a guy named Michael Bailey, who has a cover group here in Wisconsin and Iowa, Minnesota for the last 35 years. So they all kind of know who he is. He was in a group called Vic Ferrari. And he's one of the headliners. And Mark Wood, who is uh, one of the founding members of Trans-Siberian Orchestra. He's a brilliant uh, Juilliard grad uh, electric violinist. Very dynamic. So we're doing these concerts. We have 14 people on stage. Tomorrow night is the last of our 10 concerts and we'll be here in Appleton at the Fox Cities Performing Arts Center. And my daughter, Sunny, who's 15, is going to get up and sing the Christmas song with me. So she's singing her grandfather's song with her father. That's great. And I will do the best I can tonight have this happening. Oh, just, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, I, I can't. I know what's going to happen. I'm not going to be able to look at her because I'll just I'll lose it. Uh, so that's one of the projects we're doing. I'll, I'll be going out on the road again after these Christmas shows doing my show. And uh, the radio show came about by accident. I, <clears throat> I had written and recorded a new album in Appleton. I, and my wife had said, there's a radio station here that it's pretty interesting. If you listen to it, I go, I'm, I don't know. She was, it's called 91.1 The Avenue and their playlist is really different. <clears throat> I said, I'll take a listen. So listening one day and they're playing Todd Rundgren and then Billie Holiday and then Mel Torme, and then Mumford and Sons. I go, God, there's no one's doing this. Right. So it's a nonprofit radio station, so they can play whatever they want. You know, they're not beholden to some corporation. Right. I called them up. I said, hi, my name is Steve March Torme. I'm Mel Torme's son. I just made this new album. Can I send you some music? And they said, yeah, send it on, which stations don't usually do. They don't, they don't like unsolicited stuff. Right. So they got back to me and said, yeah, there, there are two or three songs here. I said, great. I said, look, if you'd said one, I'd be thrilled. I know how hard it is to get radio play. And they called back three days later and said, will you do a station ID? I said, yeah, well, that makes sense. A little station in Appleton. The Torme name is probably nice to have. And hi, this is Steve March Torme. You're listening to 91.1 The Avenue. And the general manager called me back about four days later and said, well, you got a really nice voice for radio. Uh, we have an opening for a host spot are you interested in doing it? I said, sure, I do that. I said, I did, I hosted a couple of TV shows in LA. I'm pretty sure I could handle Wisconsin radio, which I should have known better than to say that. But <clears throat> I said, but if I'm going to do it, I want, I want the best slot. I want drive time. I don't want to be on from two to six in the morning because it's yours. So I've been on weekdays every single day, three to seven for over 10 years. Uh, then they gave me the morning slot to go with it. So I'm on from six to nine in the morning. And then they gave me the Saturday night into 12 slots. So I'm on way more than I should be. I don't want to hear me that much, uh, but it, it, it helps. I do concerts in this area. People know me go, Oh, we listen to your show all the time on the radio. It's a, it's a great adjunct to what I've been doing. And the third thing is the song. I remember Christmas time. This thing came out on Thanksgiving on 91.1 the Avenue. And in less than a month, 
We are in four countries and 18 states and over 45 radio stations. That doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. I know how hard it is to get airplay, but it was a perfect storm of it's a holiday song. You're Mel Torme's son. You wrote a song 76 years after his very famous song, and it works, and people like the song. So I'm, I feel very, very fortunate. Well, we I'm love hearing what's happening to you. It's great. Your stories are great. We could have about <laughs> 25,000 stories. That's why you got to write your book. And you just uh, before, before the memory goes out. completely gone. Yeah, before I, die, I don't remember anything. <laughs> all, that, all those things. You need to start writing it now, at least writing a chapter a month or and before you you're know probably it's right. done. And you're you probably right. And you do it because it's time. And then there's so many stories. And to really look at each chapter on a famous person you've met and the way you're able to teach how you make connections with people, real life connections with people you've never met, the ability you've learned from your stepdad and your mother, how to interact with people and make connections and make lifelong connections from that meeting. You could pick 10 to 12 amazing celebrities and write a chapter on each one of them. This is me, my, 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 my skills ideation. And I see exactly that's my <laughs> talent. And I see exactly mm -hmm. that each chapter could be on a specific celebrity. So it's not about you. It's about right. those meetings and how, how Mel Torme's son and Steve March's stepson is able to have amazing meeting ups and conversations with amazing people. And you could write one on each celebrity and it could be something that's teaching how you are able to make those connections to make lifelong friendships. Something. Uh, I, I that. agree with you. I agree with you. I, I can do that. I could, I could start that in January, write my first chapter and get going. And because it's a book, there are certain things I can put in that we can't put on the radio. Exactly. But you at least have it we down. Would do. so I would keep some the of the real personal yeah. And that's yeah, what people I love, the stories. Uh, some of the stories will have to stay up here. Exactly. I agree. Well, that's what I do in concert. And that's what people say. They said, you know what? Really like the stories, like the stuff that you, you talk about. So that's not, right. not the worst idea. All right. So what's now, best we, now you got to come up with a title for me. I need I'll, I'll come up with a title. I'll, we'll stay in touch. Okay. Where can we connect with you? Best place. Where Follow you, your website. Thank right. you for asking. Yeah. Uh, people can can go to my Facebook page, which is great. That's easy to follow, but they can go to stevemarchtorme.com. It's, you know, one name altogether, Steve March, M-A-R-C-H, Torme, T-O-R-M-E.com. That's my website. Uh, if they like the song, I Remember Christmas Time, they can find it on Spotify. They can find it on Apple Music. They can find it on iTunes. And if they want to download it, I would appreciate it. Then I can buy more dog food and cat food for our pets. So that'll work. All right. We appreciate you coming by. Uh, thanks again for coming on the Neil Haley show. Take care and great stories. And that's what you got to do. Write it now. Oh, well, thank, so people, you. thank you. You're welcome. All right. Take care. See you. Thank, you, for, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Take care now. Stay thanks. safe. You too. Bye-bye. All right. It. That was the Neil Haley show guys. Take thanks. care. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And you know, when we talk about specifically enough, uh, exciting shows, and I never thought that we'd be talking reality show, HBO mask, um, Max with somebody and, and, and it's kind of interesting because of the fact that it's a reality show and usually reality shows are not meant for actors but I'm excited to welcome the program actor Brooke Lux. Uh, Brooke, thanks for stopping by. How are you? And uh, it, we're going to talk about the 12 dates of Christmas talk about some of the other projects you're having your career. I appreciate you coming by. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here and dive into the, the 12 dates 
gossip. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, uh, you know, it, it's time. We got to always have that reality and look at the reality of what we're dealing with with COVID. I can't believe we're saying this again in 2021 about to end and we're in another craziness. And that's, you know, it is what it is. I guess we're living in times that we can tell people someday these were seriously the times we were living in. And there will be an interplanetary species by that point in time. And we'll be all the, and people will be in Mars and everything when we're telling our grandkids that stuff. Okay. So let's kind of just jump right specifically into, do you always want to be an actor? Is that something you grew up wanting to do? Um, no, I mean, I, I kind of figure that out in like my late teens. I was a very athletic, very tomboy kind of girl growing up and played soccer for most of my childhood. And that was my life. And I kind of fell into the entertainment world and I fell into um, entertainment journalism first. So I would actually do a lot of press junkets and red carpet interviews and go to these screenings. And I remember sitting there at the screenings watching these movies. And then when I would talk to these celebrities about their movies after I would watch it, something just didn't really sit right with me. And being so young, I wasn't sure what until I was about 19. And I was like, I want to I want to be a filmmaker. I don't want to be interviewing these filmmakers. I want to be the filmmaker. So at 19, I kind of had a revelation, uh, dropped out of the community college I was going to to study journalism and just moved to L.A. and started from scratch and started pursuing film. Well, you have an entrepreneurial mindset. You talk about, you know, filmmaker, and I want to get into that more. But when you talk about specifically enough, you were interviewing celebrities and doing certain things. What what were you doing? Did you have your own press or were you working for other people at that age? Yeah, I was other people. I won a competition at the age of 12 to go interview the stars of Shrek the third. So at 12 years old, I was interviewing legends, Mike Myers, Julie Andrews, Cameron oh. Diaz, Joe Banderas, like, I'm pretty sure I have tunnel vision from it all. And the only memories I have are like on like footage because right. <laughs> um, it was so overwhelming, but so cool. And that's, so that's what I was doing. I was, I was kind of shadowing the entertainment journalist uh, that took me under his wing after I won this competition. And he would send me out as his junior teen or junior kid reporter. So I would go do all these kid movie press junkets and met tons of celebrities, tons of directors, tons of producers and just got to talk to them. And that that's what kind of fed that that entertainment film bug. And yeah, I mean, just enlightened me to this whole world. And you learned exactly that you liked being on camera or you liked being a journalist. You liked meaning liked being being a celebrity in some sorts, because anyone who interviews celebrities becomes a celebrity themselves in a way. Right. They're yeah. celebrate, you know, and or and so you saw this and said, why can't I do this? I want to be, and you brought up filmmaker. So, you know, we're talking about two things that you're you're acting in, and one is a reality show and one's acting. And so we're gonna talk about your latest projects, but you're saying filmmaker. This is interest intrigues me because you have to be a jack of all trades in Hollywood today, unless you're one of the top seven earners. The bottom line is you have to keep finding work. And sometimes it's creating your own work. So when you talk about filmmaker, did you go to school for filmmaking after that fact? Or did you kind of just go on your own and figure it out once you moved to Hollywood? A little bit of half and half. Um, I got a scholarship for a film academy, but I ended up not going. And I went to kind of just like private 
private classes. And that was my kind of foundation. Also, the reason I didn't go to this academy was because they said I could not be on set while attending the school. And I was already booking jobs as a script supervisor and as an actor. So I was already learning hands-on on set. And in my head, I was like, it's better to just get that real experience than pay a tuition and have someone teach me their ways. And I'm really glad I did that. And like I said, I went to, um, you know, I would do online trainings. I would read books. I would go to private classes. So I kind of just did it my own way and it's worked out for me. And I had mentors that would take me under their wing, which I think is also a very popular route. A lot of people I know have gone under and found like a mentor. How difficult is it to create a film? Uh, one of the companies I'm soon going to become CMO, I am CMO of, is Haley's Comet. And so we're mm-hmm. going into the space industry, so it's really exciting. We're really seeing space as the final thing. Even though I have, I'm an entrepreneur that has my own business as well, I'm going to be the chief marketing officer for the company and announcing that soon. So I guess I'm kind of announcing it now. But in this process, what I've learned is that you know, when we're talking to creatives and things like that, creating just a commercial, which you were, you were talking about, you've been involved in, it's very expensive. You know, you people try to do it themselves. You see it all the time on YouTube and you see it all the time as podcasters. But when you're talking high level filmmaking, it's expensive, right? How much yeah. would it cost just to do a short film? And not, we're not talking the main film. What is the, what are the costs involved in something like that? I, I just shot a short film and I think it was 12 pages and we shot it in three days. And I want to say the budget was five figures. Um, I don't know the exact number, mm-hmm. but it was actually a really great team. We had a skeleton crew. A skeleton crew is just like every department just has the minimum amount of people. And yeah, I mean, I, I, when I was naive and so green in this industry, I had no idea what it took. And I started out as an actress, kind of fell into script supervising. And I'm so grateful I did because that put the production world in a whole different light. Um, I mean, when people say it takes a village to make a movie and then you see that ca- that cast um, credits at the end of a movie, it's, I mean, I feel like at least speaking for myself, I would take that for granted. And now I just look and I'm like, I know all these people. I know most of these people, but yeah, I mean, it's so expensive. The camera lenses itself are probably individually more expensive than my car. <laughs> like, really? and they're, the lenses. I mean, if you're shooting so on it's, a so it's, so it's BS BS when you're a YouTuber or certain things I, and you're giving me tips right now, because again, <laughs> I'm getting thrown this. I've been in this industry forever and you know, I'll do the Canva deal. I'll do I've movie and all that and shoot with an iPhone. Yeah. But what the kind of company I'm going into now, we're looking cinematic. We're looking at all these different things. Can you really shoot with an iPhone and be able to have good quality film? Let's just talk for a commercial or specific things as a, as a YouTuber or vlogger or anything. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a feature film, Unsane, uh, with Claire Voigt was shot on an iPhone. Really? So- yeah, it's definitely doable. The technology with phones, especially iPhones and the lenses on like the 11 Pro with the three the three lenses on the phone, it's definitely doable. And then you have devices like a gimbal for like a steady cam. Definitely, definitely doable. Um, I mean, yeah, I feel like commercials are 
being shot on phones all the time. It, it, and then, but then when you're looking at cinematic and the top notch stuff, you know, the stuff that, you know, involves all these different things, the Super Bowl commercials, different things, what do they go? They're probably like hundred thousand dollars to shoot, right? Or more. But more. Or, yeah. Or more. Commercial, yeah, commercial yeah. budgets, the commercials I've worked on, like Ulta Beauty or Banana Republic shoots, those those budgets are insane. Commercial budgets are way, way higher than than the right, right now I'm working on like indie films as production and script supervisor yeah. six figures um which is still a lot but like yeah. commercial commercial money is insane and insane. it's all about it's all about the creative and the story and things and this is I think that what I kind of compare what indie films is what podcasting has become and compared to regular so you go to indie films compared to the big boys in film right and mm-hmm. then you look at radio and the big big top dogs and then podcasting that starting they're starting the gap is starting to not be so wide meaning that there's money to be made in indie films there's money to be made in podcasting but only a few joe rogan to name when podcasting and i'm sure there's some indie film people that have really made some huge money off one big shot and then it didn't become an indie film after that fact so it's that thing so i'm interested in your filmmaking because it interests me because is that going to be your passion even though you're going to act because we all have to do our passion and we're all we're going to have to shoot commercials different things if you chose would it be filmmaking yeah filmmaking absolutely and i'm like i said i'm so glad i felt fell into the production side of things because being a celebrity and like the fame truly isn't that appealing to me um wow okay interesting isn't that weird why is it certain makeups are different for people right you know what i mean like i want to be even bigger yeah i'm not a celebrity at all in my opinion but i mean i'm getting to that influence side i'm 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 only a few steps away and i was a former professional wrestler so i was only a few steps away before the rock wore my knee pads when i was a professional wrestler before he was he made it it. (laughs) So I just show my age, I'm I'm 48. Uh, But what I'm saying is that basically that some people, it fuels them that want to be the paparazzi. They want this. It seems like you want to be behind the camera and that's interesting and be the creative. And that's fun too. I enjoyed as well in that. And then just, you know, being on camera, I'd like to just produce podcasts and create ideas as one of my top skills is idea because ideation. And I took a, um, a, a test uh, is really cool. It's called a, um, a talent test with Gallup. And I got my five talents. My number one is ideation, which I thought it was going to be communication. That's number five. But ideation is coming with an idea very quickly and be able to strategize it from big to small. And and then strategy is my second strategic is my second skill. So when I when I think about things, I enjoy the behind the camera as well. I enjoy the the effects of creating something for somebody else. Why, why is it more? So let's just say you get an opportunity. Look, you have a great film we're going to talk about soon. What if you do get an opportunity that you become Emmy nominated or Academy? Is that going to push you that towards that level? Or are you going to constantly strive for this film fi- filmmaking? That's the, the, so let's just say something happens. You know, and I know they, everyone gets this one big shot to get on this one big show. They never thought was going to happen. And it goes viral and it becomes the biggest thing. Would you still have that mindset to be the filmmaker before that? Good question. Cause you never know what could happen. Brooke. That is, that is a great question. Um, I mean, I feel like acting is also a part of 
filmmaking. And I mean, yeah, I would, I would jump at the opportunity. Uh, diving into like a big character is a dream of mine. Acting is a dream of mine. Yes. You know, something like Squid Games or Queen's Gambit, where it's, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing opportunity to become this character and do these amazing characterizations. I would love to do that. I just, I guess what I was trying to say was like, I'm not in it for like the fame or the celebrity. You're in it because you love doing it. You love performing. You love the camera. You love the, the ability to be part of the creative and understand this industry. That's what I see for you. Yes. And I can literally talk to you about this all day long. It's, I, I feel, I would feel incomplete if I was not in this industry and just movies all around make me so happy. Um, exactly. But, and that's yeah. great. You're finding your passion. Like I love to perform. I love to perform in podcasting, speaking, going on social audio for clubhouse, especially in all these different places. This is what really makes me excited. It doesn't make me excited when I'm building a website. It doesn't make me excited when I'm doing social media for clients. That's just that, Hey, that's the way to pay the bills, but that's all that to build that entrepreneurship and managing people. I'd much rather perform all the time. I wish I was Joe Rogan, right? hundred, right. whatever he's getting paid just to do this all day long. Cause you could see it's a natural thing for me. Yeah. The, that's interesting. I'm, so I want, I'm delving in more that it's just the industry. You're not doing it for the fame. You, I, I don't know if you saw Britney Spears, uh, conservative conservator, the whole, uh, documentary. It's so sad what happened to her and everything. And she was doing, she loves performing and you see her love. And she basically was used in so many ways. So she didn't want the paparazzi. She didn't want all that stuff, but she wanted to do it because she loved the industry. Some people are living for fame. Other people are living for, Hey, I want to be someday to pick up this Academy award because I truly did something creative. I was part of an amazing story. I was part of this. And that's why I'm in the industry. And I think that's what you're trying to say, Brooke. Am I right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, if I eventually get a big platform, I will use that to my best ability. I think the one thing that this generation has in the filmmaking industry is they need these actors to have a big following now. And that's kind of put like a bitter taste in my mouth because I'm like, I don't want people to choose actors based on their social media social profile. profile isn't that crazy and Rather so that's yeah go ahead because yeah. it's so fake it could be yeah. fixed so much and their so, services okay go ahead i'm sorry about that no, wait, no yeah i mean i would rather someone be picked on their talent yes and, and 500 followers based on you know but i mean i understand that that's free press and having a big following is is good for filmmaking it's just that's that's the day and age we're in so it's kind of almost like we're forced into that platform of fame and celebrity and like pushing ourselves and posting every day and hitting that algorithm. But, um, yeah, that's not what it's about for me. I so love that's I love really happening because we start to see, and then you see the fakeness. If you get a big show, they give you verified and you get all these fake followers on Twitter, right? You know that. And I know that didn't just come out of oh, nowhere. They came from somewhere else. An agency went and gave them all those followers. They weren't really truly a tribe. And I think Brooke that this is if you're an actor and you're looking to try to get more gigs based on your following, build a tribe based on who truly you are and build a community. Don't go build a bunch of fake things that they offer all the time for IG and all that stuff. Cause I bet you they can tell, right. They want you to have a fan following that they're interested in you. How do like the, this is, this is so interesting. I didn't think we'd go this direction. Then we're going to get right into uh, 12 dates of Christmas. Uh, yeah. I didn't because this is my passion, understanding these things. So 
when they evaluate your algorithm and all these different things, are they able to tell real from fake a lot of these directors or not? Or these casting people? Because you know, and I know that a lot of this Instagram's fake. A lot yeah. of this, this is not really developed. You really don't have a fan base. You have a fake base that yes, right. you might've either paid for, you might've gotten uh, kind of fake followers or fake engagement that really would not buy your stuff. How are, how's Hollywood or even, you know, any of the communities, because they're clueless in marketing to really understand what's happening. Have you seen that at all or had those conversations? Um, a little bit. I think the telltale sign is if you have a high following and your likes and your comments and engagement doesn't really match. It's pretty, it's pretty blatant. Like anyone can see how many likes you're getting and comments you're getting. And if you have like 20,000 followers and you're getting kind of like 400, 500 likes, it might not add up. So I think that's the telltale sign. But other than that, I'm, I'm not sure how to evaluate. Like, Isn't that terrible? Because guess what? There are services you can buy to get all these likes and comments and stuff like that. And they're all that's bogus. And then guess what? You're paying for it. And you're really, they're not real people. And you have to dive deeper. And if people don't understand that, it's like, you know, I rather have a engaged audience. And when I build for clients of 40 or 50 likes for a post that they're really their tribe that they're building versus, and not the tribe, not people that you're really interacting to that want to know who you are, want to see your next films. And that's where I guess the age that we're in, we can't figure out yet. Right. right. And so, yeah. so, but it's good. And you bring all those things up. And I'm sure if you were looking to fund a film, they'd say, well, of the people you have, what are their followers? Right. Isn't that yeah. crazy? And that's where we've gone. It's, it's, it's nuts for sure. Okay. So let's talk 12 dates of Christmas. Wow. You put yourself out there, Brooke. Yeah. Didn't you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. I, and okay. So tell us about, tell us the premise of it and it's real. It's reality. Hint, hint, yeah. We all know, you know, the bachelor bachelorette, a little, not completely reality, but you put yourself out there. Really? I did. Yeah. Unscripted show 12 dates of Christmas has three leads. There's a straight male lead who I was in his pod. That was Danny. There was a lesbian lead, Amanda. And then there was a gay lead who was Markel. There was a twist in the gay pod, which I don't know if I want to say, cause it's not Christmas yet. I don't want to plot spoil. It's a really good like twist midway through the season. It actually happens before I even come on the show. So I didn't know about it until I was on the show and the cast was like telling me about it. So um, yeah, I, I was there for Danny and I came in on episode five and you get to see my journey. Um, I want to like, I don't, I don't know if you want me to plot spoil. I don't no, know. no, don't plot spoil at all. Just what, what about, so basically you coming on, so this is real, right? You're going on a date, right? This is not yeah. fake. Yeah, no, not, not fake at all. Um, <laughs> it was there. I went there for a connection. My, my talent manager was actually approached about this show and we talked about it because I am an actress and I yeah. had just got really messy breakup. And I was like, you know what, Tal, like, I think I just want to do it for myself. And I do want to go and see if it works out. And speaking of the COVID day and age, we all had to quarantine for weeks before filming. And I'm really glad I had that quarantine time because I overthink, I overthought everything, every outcome. Am I going to meet my husband? Am I going to meet my boyfriend? Like what's going to happen? And by the end of quarantine, I went into, I went into the lodge with no expectations. And I think that was the best thing I ever could have done for myself because I truly went in having fun and authentic me. And I did build a connection with someone. So, yeah. and so we have to find out, we don't want to spoil it. See, there you go. I'm going to be 
doing my own producing 